Thanks very much, Jenna, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this panel discussing adjudicatory proceedings that took place during, uh, during COVID. Uh, my name is Matt Sweet. I'm a partner with the law firm of Hamill, Marson, Dunn, Reardon, and Shea based out of Hingham. I'm also the uh, co-chair of the BBA's insurance and tort section this year. Um, I'm incredibly fortunate to be joined today by two fantastic attorneys. First is Gwen Nolan King from Sugarman Rogers, Barshack and Cohen. She's a partner there. And also Mark Corner from the law firm of Reamer and Bronstein. He's also a partner with that firm. Um, and what we're hoping to do today uh, is talk to you all about some of the types of proceedings that we took part in during the COVID pandemic, um, both so you get a sense of sort of ways in which cases have been resolved when perhaps our normal 12 person jury trial has not been available, um, what went well during these proceedings, what didn't go so well, and how these proceedings can really inform us as we work to try to work collectively as a civil litigation bar, both plaintiffs and defense attorneys to try to figure out the best way to get through what is a daunting and significant case uh, backlog in the courts. I think we, we have an obligation on both sides of the V to our clients to figure out ways to resolve cases when our normal jury trials may not be available to us. So the way the panel will work is we'll start with each one of us sort of giving you an overview, a high level overview of each of the proceedings that we took part in. They were very unique and different. Um, and then we'll circle back to each panelist to talk about, again, uh, as the title of the panel says, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the proceedings and how those proceedings can really inform us as we move forward and try to resolve our own cases. As Jenna mentioned, there's a question and answer uh, uh, function at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Feel free to use that throughout the session and I will be monitoring that and ask the questions when appropriate and I will do our, our level best to get to each one of those questions. Um, without any further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Gwen to talk about what she went through. Good morning. Thank you, Matt. Um, so as Matt said, I'm a partner at Sugarman Rogers, and I'm here to discuss my experience today um, that I had doing a land court trial in June of this, uh, just a few months ago. Um, this was a land court trial that was in front of Judge Speicher. Um, it had eight attorneys on the defense side for multiple defendants and um, the law firm of Anderson Krieger on the side for the plaintiffs. Um, we learned from Judge Speicher probably six months prior to trial that the trial would be going forward and it would be via Zoom. Um, how that was going to go with a case that had numerous experts, hundreds of exhibits, was uh, remained to be seen by all parties involved. So um, as I discuss the case and what went well later, I'll show you some screenshots of what the trial actually looked like, some lessons we learned and some um, points to be careful of if you have the same experience coming forward. Great, thanks very much, Gwen. Um, so back in July, I, I went uh, forward with a two day uh, arbitration with a sitting Superior Court Judge, Superior Court Judge Robert Gordon. Um, for those of you who have been in front of Judge Gordon, he has quite a few ideas uh, for different unique ways to resolve cases. And one of the things that he presented in my case was a baseball style arbitration. Um, and the case I was handling was a uh, subrogation products liability case where I was defending the product manufacturer. 
And the plaintiff's attorney and I decided that this baseball arbitration would be a good way to go about it, uh, much to Judge Gordon's delight. Um, I think we were the first people to take him up on that idea. Um, and the idea was that it would be an arbitration, as any arbitration would be. You would present evidence. Um, but then at the close of the evidence, each party would present a settlement figure, um, some number to resolve the case. And the judge had two choices, the plaintiff's number or the defendant's number, and nothing in between and nothing outside of those numbers. This is akin to sort of the way that salaries are arbitrated in Major League Baseball. Um, and so that went forward um, all by Zoom um, back in July. Um, I look back at it a bit fondly because I did obtain a defense verdict in the case, but it was a remarkably effective way to resolve the case, although there were certain aspects to it that I would certainly rethink. You definitely would have to have the right type of case um, to use this baseball style arbitration uh, for, and then the right judge who really would embrace the idea. So I'll get into that in a little more detail um, when we circle back, but that is the uh, proceeding that I was involved in um, just this past July. Mark? Uh, thank you, Matt. Um, I have a very clear memory on uh, March 13, 2020 of leaving, of walking back to my office after my last live deposition and noting how quiet the streets of Boston were and coming back to my office and seeing an email from the managing partner saying that, uh, gee, we should plan on working from home for the next two weeks. Uh, the managing partner recently uh, resent that uh, that uh, that email along as a point of reference and how far we've come in this uh, through this pandemic. Uh, at that point, had no idea what the, what you know as, as, as nobody else did uh, how how our uh, uh, how our uh, practice of law was going to going to evolve over the next uh, now eighteen months. Uh, I was vaguely aware of something called uh, called Zoom. Uh, I had never participated in, in any sort of a Zoom meeting or been on a Zoom, uh, on a Zoom call. And, and of course, to my surprise, it became a very, uh, very significant part of my practice over the next now 18 months. Uh, I've done many, many depositions, court conferences, uh, non-evidentiary hearings, and mediations over Zoom. I've actually done two, uh, uh, two uh, evidentiary hearings over Zoom. One was a, I tried the first uh, uh, evidentiary hearing of an appeal at the Housing Appeals Committee uh, for, the, for the Commonwealth, which is the, the entity that hears appeals from uh, affordable housing chapter 40B cases. Uh, I also uh, tried a, or a, a uh, an evidentiary hearing on a preliminary injunction uh, that was on remand from a decision of the single justice that was that also took place over Zoom. So I pretty much have uh, run the table, I think, on 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 Zoom proceedings. Uh, now, one of the items that was on my calendar coming into uh, coming into uh, mid uh, 2021. Uh, was a jury trial that was scheduled to take place in Middlesex Superior Court on July 26th. Case is a business dispute between two business owners, each of whom owned a, uh, a uh, an answering service company, and the uh, and the plaintiff uh, 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 sold her uh, her um, client list uh, to my client. 
uh, in order to take, she was basically, you know, and was asking her to take over her business and to serve and to continue to service her clients as she was approaching, as she, she was, she was sick and approaching retirement age. Uh, there were very significant questions about the case and regarding whether the, uh, whether there was, whether there was actually a contract formed, uh, whether either party had breached the contract and what, and what was the, uh, and, and whether there were it, determining the value of the, of the client list that was, uh, that was, that was transferred. Um, it's a case that we had, you know, it was uh, that we had tried to settle for a long period of time, and we ended up coming into uh, uh, coming into uh, coming into July, and uh, and you know the case had been had been scheduled for trial the previous July, and of course had been put off, you know, it put been put off almost exactly a year. Uh, it was a 2018 case, so it wasn't wasn't a super old case. And of course, I'm reading like everybody else about the backup, the uh, the, the, tri the trial court backup on both criminal and civil cases. And and I said, well, this I'm not going to be trying it. I'm not going to be trying this jury case in the middle of summer. Well, lo and behold, after some conversations with both the clerk and opposing counsel, I learned that in fact we were going to go to uh, go to trial and have have a jury trial in Middlesex Superior Court. Uh, we went and it was that it was still uh, still ready to go. We showed up at the final trial conference the week before and said, yeah, you're 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 going to go, and uh, which the. Um, uh, the the uh, the the uh, Judge Doolin, who was the trial judge, seemed very excited about the prospect of finally having a uh, a live trial in his in his courtroom, and so we ended up trying that. Uh, we had a three day three day trial before a jury in uh, in in Middlesex Superior Court back in uh, back in July, and that's that's and I'm told that I was if not I was among the first cases uh, first jury trials. Uh, to be heard in in Superior Court after the uh, you know once once the uh, COVID restrictions were loosened up. So that's that's the uh, the proceeding I'm here on is one of the first first uh, jury trials in, in in Superior Court post post COVID or mid COVID I should say. Thank you, Mark. So as you can see, we have uh, a bench trial uh, that took place over Zoom, um, an arbitration uh, with a sitting judge that took place over Zoom, and then an in-person jury trial towards the end of, well, we were not quite through COVID. Uh, we can't really say that, but towards the end of the restrictive period for COVID. Um, and so hopefully the wide variety of, of hearings that we're talking about today and proceedings we're talking about today will be informative to everyone. But I think what might be even more informative is talking about how these proceedings went. So again, I'll, I'll turn it back over to Gwen to talk about her, uh, her bench trial in land court. Thanks, Matt. Okay, so um, uh, I'm now gonna share my screen, which is actually a very appropriate way to start this exercise, because as you'll see, despite having done the two week trial in land court, I still am not the most efficient with sharing my screen. So bear with me for one second. Oh, it seems that the, the screen sharing was disabled in this se section, Jenna. You should be able to do that now. Okay. Okay. Okay, can everybody see that? Yes, we can. Okay, great. So um, what you're looking at right now is essentially what we saw on the first day of trial. As you see, there's Judge Spicer in the bottom right corner. Um, so I wanna talk about what you see, what you don't see and how we got to this moment. Obviously a lot of preparation went into this trial. Um, so you see Miss Amand, St. Amand, who is, was the court reporter in here. She's at the left-hand, lower left-hand part of the screen. She is on the screen throughout the entire trial. 
Um, that was something that we did not know how it was going to go. We did not know if the person who was speaking would be in active speaker mode, so you would just see their face. That's not the case. You will always see the judge's face, opposing party's face, a witness if there is one, and um, and the court reporter's face. You can disable your own face, which some attorneys have decided to do. So you can disable it so you cannot see your own screen. Um, it's helpful, I think, in, if that distracts you to eliminate that. Some attorneys like it, though, because then they can see what the judge sees behind them. Now, as I said, I had, we had eight attorneys representing multiple defendants on our side. So what you see at the top right is what is the defense counsel's, what the judge saw for the defense counsel screen. Now, this was actually in a conference room. Um, everybody was able to confirm that they were vaccinated and all defense counsel was in this conference room collectively during the entire trial. And that's something to consider how many parties or how many uh, attorneys are on the screen at any time for the defendants or the plaintiffs or whatever the whoever the parties are. Now, if we had had an attorney for each defendant on the screen at every time, Judge Speicher would have been seeing seven different squares on his screen and that would have reduced the size of, of the, the active speaker at that time. We as a, as a team made the decision that we would only have one image on, on the screen on behalf of the defendants at the time. And so behind what you see Diane Tillotson, who is one of the um, attorneys for another co-defendant of ours, there are attorneys sitting off to the side and it was announced to Judge Feister that they were there at all times. He would sometimes call out to them and ask them specific questions and they would come to the microphone. What you also see here on the defense counsel screen, as opposed to where you see attorney uh, Melissa Allison who represented the plaintiff in this case, are two totally different setups. And I think it's important for you if you're going to be doing a trial by Zoom or, or, Zoom or any adjudicatory proceeding to consider what your setup's going to be. Now, the, we were in a very nice conference room that actually had the entire ceiling mic and had a huge screen up on the wall. So we thought that that would be the best way to do it. However, in our trial run-ups to, to trial, we learned that while this, the microphones and the ceilings were a luxury in some aspects, they were also a huge downside because they picked up every single clicking in the, in the entire room and they projected it through Zoom. Um, so it's very important, no matter how you're going to do this, that you do a test run. Um, the court reporter will provide a Zoom link and she will do multiple test runs if necessary with all parties so that people can practice how to share screens, how to share exhibits, and also test their sound equipment. So I suggest if you have a trial by Zoom or any adjudicatory proceeding, you have somebody Zoom in in a separate room. Now that person is going to be in the best position to judge your audio and your video. Um, you wanna make sure you're zoomed in so the court can see your face right on their screen. And you wanna make sure the judge can hear you and nobody in the background, because as we all know, there are people talking and shuffling papers in the background. So, um, and as you can see with attorney Allison, she chose to be sitting closer to the screen in a more similar Zoom style that we all appear ourselves. Um, currently. So um, however you do it, test it out and make sure um, uh, everybody is on the same page that it's a, it's a successful working model. Um, now, 
we did opening statements. Judge Speicher explained that he had done one Zoom trial at that point, but it was much smaller and it didn't, it wasn't as complicated. So it was, we were all going forward um, blindly in this situation. This was a case uh, that had multiple experts. Sorry, as I try to, have I switched it? I didn't switch it, did I? So um, as you can see here, uh, the expert, Dr. Brian Donahue is in the middle of the screen. We have now switched to, this was my witness. And so I'm sitting directly in the screen to the top left with my co-counsel, Lisa Goodhart and Vanessa Arslanian. Now, when you're doing this, you also have to practice how you're going to be bringing exhibits up and discussing with your expert documents. Um, as you can see, uh, Vanessa on the left was there. She actually had a keyboard in front of her by which she could control all the documents. I suggest if you're doing a trial by Zoom and you're not able to utilize another individual um, or, or in this situation, the giant screen ahead of us, but you have somebody who can sit next to you off screen who can assist you with the documents. Um, so this is what Judge Speicher would see on his screen when we were taking direct testimony or cross-examination. But as you'll see in the next slide, his image would change once we brought a document up. So here's an example of an exhibit that was brought up at trial. And as you can see, when you bring an exhibit up at trial, you switch to active speaker mode. Now, when you switch to active speaker mode, only that block is shown. So as you can see in the top right here, I now only see myself. I don't see Dr. Donahue and I don't see the judge. That's a frustrating element because you wanna be able to perceive what the judge perceives the expert is saying and what um, and how, and you wanna make sure the judge can, 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 can um, make that credibility determination. So one thing that we quickly learned during the Zoom trial is that it's important to bring the document up onto the screen, have um, it authenticated, and then you bring it down and you refer back again to the binders in front of the court and in front of the expert. Um, now, one thing I wanna go back and note about the expert, as you see here, Dr. Donahue is in a separate room from us. In Judge Feischer's order, he ruled that the witnesses could not be in the same room as, their, as the attorneys, but they could be in the same building or office. So we had a separate conference room where, where our experts were housed. Um, and again, we had to test out their own equipment. Um, there were some hiccups when they changed their own um, laptops by plugging them in. That did take some time. So I would suggest if you can have a standalone computer set up for your witnesses, if you have multiple witnesses, that would probably be the most efficient transition from one witness to the other. We had to take several breaks just for um, technology to be readjusted when somebody else was using a different computer. Going back to the documents, um, you'll see here, this is, a, the, this is actually what I would consider one of the biggest downfalls of a Zoom trial is that you eliminate the element of surprise in some way. Um, here is what the judge saw, and you can see at the top of this, there are all of these tabs. These are the contested exhibits, the agreed to exhibits, and the chalks that we have prepared for this witness. 
it was very cumbersome to figure out a way that you would be able to not have those tabs at the top of the screen. We did try opening a folder and and um, and and bringing up the exhibits one by one, but it proved to really break the rhythm of the trial. So it, this was something that we made as a strategic decision that it was easier to do it this way. The other problem is with PowerPoints, it wasn't reading well. We weren't in, we were not able to put the exhibits into a PowerPoint and have it show with enough um, clarity that it would assist the judge. Um, the reason it was important in this case to be able to make sure that those documents were large and on the screen is as you can see, this was a, this was a case dealing with, with hundreds of ancient records and the judge's ability to look at it right on the screen and, and us to blow it up for him was actually a significant benefit of the Zoom trial. After this trial was over, Judge Speicher remarked that he actually thought this was a very helpful trial to have on Zoom because we were able to zoom in on some of these more um, complex exhibits. And we were also able to utilize our cursors to be able to narrate the judge as to the area of the map or the document that we were talking about. Um, and that brings me to my next uh, slide. And that's the chalks. Now, initially, you can see here, this is a chalk we brought up for our expert to help narrate to the judge or certain, certain locations of individuals on this map. We initially practiced with our expert trying to have him in live time mark the map as you would expect one to do a trial. Imagine a, an in-person trial, you have a blown up chalk and you give your expert a red Sharpie and they're able to circle the part they're talking about. And that would be marked as a chalk. Here, we noticed that that was a very difficult thing to actually accomplish because to have a live time markup made, even though Zoom has that functionality, you can create a marker, you can circle something on the screen. For the court reporter to be able to mark that as a chalk, you had to actually stop and take a screenshot of the image. Because if you moved it at all, the markup on Zoom moves away from where the, the expert had marked it, which obviously eliminates the purpose of the chalk itself. So um, we pre-prepared our chalks and we did not do any uh, chalks in live time. I think if that, if that is something that is extremely beneficial, that is something you wanna make sure you practice time and time again with your expert. Um, it was cumbersome. Um, I would say a, a very important aspect of you know, how to do a trial by Zoom was thinking about what the judge sees. So. I just shared my screen for 10 minutes and you saw the screen and you didn't see me. Judge Spicer consistently reminded us sometimes with a little bit of agitation, please take the document down so I can see everybody who's talking. That's important feedback to be giving to the judge. And it's also important for you to be aware of um, everybody needs to be able to be seen. And in terms of objections, um, you wanna make sure the judge can see if you're about to make an objection. Um, as to some technical tips, you know, make sure if you are using a microphone, it has batteries. We had to change our batteries routinely because sometimes we would notice that our microphones had gone out. Um, thankfully, George Speicher was very quick to be able to appreciate that we were <laughs> waving our hands and saying, one second. Um, the other thing that's important to note is that as 
you take numerous breaks, obviously a trial, you must stop your video and mute your video. Um, I think that obviously strategically can be a huge error because as everybody knows, when um, you take a break, the tendency is to discuss what just happened or to assess the witness or to assess the court's reaction to the witness. So I think it's very important to make sure that um, you uh, have somebody who's their, their main job is to, to mute and to put the video down. I would say if you can have assistance, uh, uh, it would be very hard to do a trial by Zoom by yourself. There's so many different components to have it go smoothly. But that, that I think it's important to have multiple people assisting you, at least one person to be bringing exhibits up and down so that you're not distracted with the technical aspects of it. Um, I know I went through that pretty quickly, but I wanna make sure I allow Matt and Mark time to talk about theirs. So if there's any questions, I can answer them at the end. Great, thanks very much, Gwen. And fascinating stuff, truly. Uh, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I, I am fascinated by all the, the nuances of these different proceedings. Um, and my proceeding, as I mentioned, was a little bit different. It was a, it was a two day arbitration all over Zoom. So myself, plaintiff's counsel were at home as I am now um, on Zoom. The judge was in, in the courtroom with his clerk and we had four expert witnesses across the country and each one of them participated by Zoom. Um, so the good, the bad, and the ugly of this procedure. The good was it was incredibly efficient as a way to resolve a case that was getting old on the court's docket. Um, as a defense attorney, I was cognizant of the prejudgment interest that was accruing um, since the case had been filed. And from the plaintiff's perspective, it was a case that had been lingering for a while. And so they wanted some sort of re resolution for their client. And quite frankly, we were staring at, at best, we didn't have a trial date. At the, at the time of the arbitration. So I don't even think we had a pretrial conference date if, if memory serves. So we were looking at two, three, maybe four years before we would see uh, a trial. And this was projected to be a four to six day trial in Suffolk Superior Court, obviously one of the busiest courts in the Commonwealth. And so the prospects of us seeing a jury trial in this case were fairly remote anytime in the, in the near future. So it allowed us to quickly resolve the case, which has benefits for everyone. Um, that it also saved an immense amount of time and, and money, quite frankly, in having experts that were literally across the country um, fly to Boston to testify. Um, it also saved attorneys time in traveling into Boston to be in court. Um, it was a click of a button and we're in, into the arbitration. Um, so that was the biggest benefit. And I think that's something we all have to consider um, for when we look at our, our caseload and our case list and cases that are getting old, you know, defense attorneys have to be cognizant of prejudgment interest as it accrues. And I'm sure plaintiff's attorneys have to be cognizant of wanting to resolve cases for their clients. And we all know that the courts are very uh, cognizant of trying to clear their dockets, especially of older cases. So Sometimes you have to be creative and think about ways to resolve cases that are a little bit unique, and this was certain, certainly one of them. Um, the, I won't call it bad, but the challenging aspects of this proceeding were that, um, you know, the challenges of it being over Zoom, and Gwen sort of made some references to this. I found it very difficult to cross-examine witnesses over Zoom. Um, and I think part of it was, as Gwen mentioned, the lack of an ability to surprise a witness. Um, it's difficult for, especially for expert witnesses, trying to impeach them on um, publications in their field, uh, publications they may have cited in their report but did not do completely. Um, bringing up a 45-page 
uh, article in a magazine, uh, a periodical, and trying to skim through it to point out the parts in which they misquoted or failed to quote fully or didn't bother to reference doesn't have the same effect over Zoom, in my humble opinion, as it does in person. So that's a little bit difficult. And the other thing that Gwen mentioned that was, was challenging was putting things on the screen, sharing the screen changes the view for the judge. Um, and so the judge no longer sees the witness, sees me speaking and not the witness. I couldn't see the judge exactly what Gwen said. That it's a, it was a bit uh, uh, frustrating and difficult to get used to. And so you, we did have to be very cognizant of when to share the document, when not to share the document, when to take it down. So that was one of the challenges. The other challenge was the way in which this particular proceeding evolved. Um, and I would suggest that this was a useful a way to arbitrate a case, the baseball style arbitration. Um, depending on the particular case you have, I think it has to be the right case and you have to have everyone on board, obviously, and you need to have the right judge. Um, but the judge, you know, was very uh, stern about the expert disclosures that had been uh, circulated among the parties and basically said, I don't need a direct examination of your witnesses. Um, you should have put everything you wanted in your expert disclosures. And that's true. Um, and this is a practice pointer for uh, younger attorneys and even more seasoned attorneys to again reiterate, make sure your expert disclosures have everything you want to talk about at trial because a judge like Judge Gordon is going to have them in front of him and is going to make sure you're not straying outside of that. And so he actually strongly suggested that we waive uh, direct examinations of our witnesses and go right into cross-examination and then have time for rebuttal. And so uh, both of the attorneys in the case, you know, hearing uh, a judge very strongly suggesting something and the judge being the ultimate decider of the case, we agreed uh, with that. Um, I, I would I would think hard about doing that again. Um, and it's not because there was anything wrong with my expert disclosures, for example. My experts after the fact were frustrated um, that they weren't able to fully articulate their opinion. And again, we ended up with a positive result. So the net effect of it didn't affect my case necessarily, but I'm not sure if the plaintiff's attorney feels the same way um, because maybe he felt also that his experts weren't able to fully articulate their opinions. So um, in an arbitration like this, again, I would certainly use this proceeding, but I'm not sure that I would um, waive the direct examinations as we did in this case. Um, similarly, Judge Gordon strongly suggested that uh, opening statements were not needed. Um, we, we decided to give a brief opening statement, but it was truncated. It wouldn't be with the full opening statement I would have given at trial, obviously, or even a private arbitration, perhaps, or, or a regular non-baseball style arbitration. So I would think long and hard about waiving the uh, full opening statement again, again, although the result of this case was, was strong. And then the very nature of the baseball arbitration in and of itself, um, you're, you're, you're really bound to presenting a number and the other side presents a number and that's really the only choice uh, that, the, that you're giving the arbitrator um, is one, one number or the other. And it sounded good when we started, um, but by the end, it became very difficult to pinpoint what that number would be. The idea of the baseball arbitration is that parties need to be reasonable in the number they put forth. If uh, if the plaintiff were to put forth an extravagant number, um, the, the arbitrator would gravitate towards the more reasonable defense number. And, and if the defendant put up $0 or $1 as their proposed settlement value, obviously the arbitrator would, would uh, sort of uh, 
gravitate towards the other side. So the idea was to encourage the parties to be reasonable. Um, but at the same time, you know, we felt at the end of the arbitration that the evidence had come in quite well for us. Um, so we didn't want to put in a number to make us seem unreasonable. But at the end of the day, we felt maybe we had overpaid some um, because we were trying to focus on the reasonableness of the resolution rather than the evidence as it came in. But that we knew that going in, that was the nature of the baseball arbitration. But, um, but, but overall, it was a positive experience. Again, it has to be the right case. It has to be the right judge suggesting it. I wouldn't recommend uh, presenting this as an idea to a judge who doesn't fully understand or endorse the idea. Judge Gordon was a huge proponent of this as he is as a wide variety of, of ways to resolve cases. Um, so I think if you have the right case and you happen to be in front of Judge Gordon or a judge who suggested something like this, explore it, think about it. Make sure though, you fully explain what it's going to look like to your client. They fully understand the pitfalls, the changes, um, because there are some cases that it's, it's, it's a case that uh, should go to a jury and your client has the right to go to a jury. So while, while we're cognizant and really trying to work through and find ways to resolve cases, some cases don't lend themselves to anything but a, a jury of 12 people of our client's peers. So that's the experience I went through, largely positive. There were some things I would have done differently, um, but again, an option to think about as you look at your own case, lo uh, case log and backlog and try to figure out how to resolve some of these cases that maybe seem unresolvable. Oh, the other thing was is that we had engaged in significant settlement discussions in this case. We had gone to an all-day mediation with Brian Moen at Commonwealth Mediation. We had, uh, we had set up at least two or three conference calls to try to resolve the case through direct negotiations even after that mediation failed. And we were just at loggerheads as, as to the value of the case. We just looked at it differently. Um, and um, this was a mechanism not only to resolve a case much more quickly than a jury trial would have done, but it also allowed us to break the stalemate um, and come up with a resolution and finally move along from the case. So that was my experience. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Mark to talk about his in-person jury trial in Middlesex Superior. Well, to Matt's point, uh, a, the, the jury of 12 that your client is entitled to in, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Massachusetts State Court is now a jury of six, uh, at, least, at least for the time being, because that, uh, that was my experience. Uh, and um, so I showed up in, uh, in court on July 26th, and it was my second time in a courtroom uh, since, uh, since uh, March, of, uh, March of 2020. Um, the, I, had, I had a case that was a jury waive case that was supposed to go to trial in uh, in April in federal court. We ended up settling that case the night before. So I had at least been in a court uh, in a courtroom, uh, but certainly we didn't. Uh, but uh, not in anger, as they say. Um, so I, I I showed up in, uh, in 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 Woburn and went through the went through security and and I tried to get in using my driver's license, which the uh, which the uh, the court officer told me I I, I didn't need the bar card. Uh, so it gives you an idea of how long, how long it had been. Um, so we, the case was tried up in, if you're familiar with it, um, uh, Middlesex Superior Court in Woburn, it was tried in uh, courtroom 720 up on the seventh floor. 
Uh, it's I think the courtrooms are pretty much in, in Middlesex set up the same way. They're uh, the locations of the uh, of, of the bench are in, in different locations in some of the courtrooms. Uh, the thing that the, the the first thing that sprang immediately to mind is the case. The courtroom looked more like a hockey rink. Uh, there there was plexiglass everywhere. There was a plexiglass around the witness stand. There are two separate uh, plexiglass enclosures for the uh, one for the judge and then the and then the uh, clerk's table uh, the, the clerk's table in front. Um, the courtroom was set up with a uh, two lecterns. One was one was in the in the center of the courtroom uh, for purposes of addressing the uh, the jury and opening and closing, and then the other was was actually outside the rail. Uh, which is I, I typically like to do conduct direct examination from the back of the courtroom, but this was this is even further back than I'm than than I'm uh, familiar with. Uh, so I was actually I was actually stand when doing direct examination. I was actually standing in the uh, in the uh, the area where the where the where the public assembles. Um, the uh, uh, the because of the because of social distancing and so forth, we had uh, we were we were told look you know don't approach the witness, uh, please um, you know, uh, please use um, uh, you know, pl please question witnesses either from the from the lectern or from one of the lecterns or from counsel table. And I was on during during uh, cross examination. I was generally from counsel table rather than lurking around in the well. Um, the so that was sort of the the courtroom setup. Uh, I thought the I, one good thing is I thought that the both the court uh, I, I thought the court facilities were, did a very good uh, were, were set up very well to provide for social distancing and uh, and you know, just just to to prevent uh, you know aerosol from from going from place to place uh, the the locations of the the lecterns were far enough away from the from the jury uh, and from the other people in the in the courtroom that it was you know it was it was a, it was a safe environment. Um, this this the trial was conducted at the end of July when things were looked like they were loosening up a little bit from the mask standpoint. Uh, we were the the part the um, everyone in the courtroom was was requested to wear masks. Uh, everybody was vaccinated, as it turns out, both all the parties and the uh, the and the court personnel and, and the attorneys. Uh, but we we were asked to wear masks. However, we were allowed to take our masks off when we were addressing either the court. Uh, a witness uh, or the jury, so I was able to I, I was able to uh, do you know, opening and closing without a mask on, uh, and I was you know probably I was given where they given where the lecture they placed the lectern I was far enough away that I was able to you know give give them some uh, give them some space. Um, there was the we the the uh, court judge uh, judge Doolin conducted uh, individual voir dire. So each the for initially all of the. Uh, uh, all of the, the entire venari came into the courtroom, and it was a smaller venari than I'm accustomed to seeing. There was there were probably maybe 30 people in a in a pretty good sized uh, courtroom, and again, they were the people were were situated so that they were they were socially distanced uh, from each other. Um, and after going through the preliminary questions, the ju the the judge said uh, sent each of the jurors out. And they were, at, and and then they were, they would uh, take the each each juror took the witness stand and was and was asked the the judge asked some preliminary questions. Then he gave gave each each attorney about a minute or so to conduct to to ask questions. Now the the which not an not an atypical way of do, of doing individual uh, voir dire, but the court the judge did give the juror the opportunity to uh, to to wear the mask if they were if if they if they felt more comfortable in in doing so. 
which and then and also but during the course of the trial the jurors required were required to wear masks there were we impaneled it was a six-person jury we impaneled eight and all eight were uh, um, uh, deliberated uh, I found it a little bit uh, what one I guess a bad thing is that I was not able to look at, at at the jurors' faces when you know when I was when, when I was addressing them, and and during uh, uh, during examination I would typically I was actually I was I didn't have anyone with me so uh, so I was I would typically have asked my client who was, who was sitting inside that was allowed to sit sit inside the bar uh, to keep their eye on the uh, on the jurors when other when uh, when uh, when during during examination of course there was nothing there was nothing to see because because they were uh, they were, you know weren't able to pick up any facial expressions so trying a jury case that's always something that you want to have access to and that's that is I guess that's that was that's one thing that that uh, was that was uh, that was not made available to to us. Um, other than that, the case the, the case went as a typical uh, jury trial does. Uh, the uh, open you know, openings um, were we, we did we had some uh, we, we we had some uh, some motions to eliminate that the court heard before uh, before bringing the jury in. Uh, we went through we went through impanelment. It's faster to faster to impanel eight people than it is to impanel fourteen. So that was you know that was that was beneficial from a time standpoint. Uh, the jury, the the trial went for uh, three days. We we started on Monday. We closed the evidence on uh, on uh, Wednesday at about one. Uh, we came back from lunch, and the and the uh, jury had, uh, had delivered its uh, delivered its verdict. Um, the 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 jury returned a verdict against my client that was that was about half of the amount that I had offered in settlement the week before so uh, I, I, I viewed that as a positive outcome the, uh, the 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 case is still under advisement because there were there were 93a claims going each way which the ju uh, which uh, judge Doolin reserved for himself as well as some other uh, equitable claims so the case is still under advisement but the uh, but the, the the entire jury component was uh, is is done at this point um, so I guess from the from the from the standpoint going back to the standpoint of the the good the bad the ugly the good was it's great to be back in a courtroom again. Uh, I was uh, dur during uh, uh, during impanelment. I, I found myself uh, look you know look uh, looking through the the juror questionnaires and trying and you know looking ahead to say oh gee who if I if I exclude this if I if I use a peremptory on this witness who have I got coming up behind. And I and I I just remember you know just remember sitting and thinking like this is it is it's great to be doing this again. Um, I thought as I as I indicated I thought both the court and the uh, and the judge did a very good job of of making the making the environment safe and making the uh, and making everybody uh, comfortable. I thought the judge did a very nice job in dealing with the witnesses and making sure that they you know that they felt that they were that their uh, their health was being protected in terms of you know giving them the option to uh, wear masks during uh, uh, during uh, during voir dire. And um, and they and they, as I noted, there's a, you know there was you know more more social distancing in the jury box. The veneer venari was smaller, so th those were all those were all things adjustments that were made, uh, which you know certain you know certainly from a uh, from a public health standpoint, uh, I thought was, was was very helpful and didn't you know didn't impact the uh, the, the trial in, uh, in you know in any in any discernible way. Um, 
the they also the court was uh, was very diligent about having somebody come in and clean and uh, clean off counsel table and and the uh, and the lectern and the and the witness stand uh, uh, during breaks to to you know make sure that every that the that you know that that uh, health and safety was uh, was maintained. Again, the 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 I guess the bad thing I would say as I previously noted, not being able to see the jurors' faces was what was was difficult, uh, and. Um, I we I was fortunate that after the uh, after the trial, my client and I were out in the parking lot, and actually two of the jurors came up to us and they gave us some feedback about uh, about how the uh, how the case the case went. So I did I did have it in did have it in retrospect uh, that the uh, but uh, not not being able to gauge it in real time was uh, was was a bit frustrating. Fortunately, they came back they they came back quickly enough uh, with so we didn't have a lot of anxiety about about wait, waiting for it to come back. Um, the uh, I this case was different from uh, Gwen's case in terms of numbers of witnesses and uh, and 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 exhibits because we had a very you know a relatively small number of of exhibits less than twenty uh, we only had um, I, actually only three live witnesses and then I read in the the in my case in chief I read in portions of the plaintiff's deposition transcript so it was it was a pretty streamlined case from that uh, from that standpoint. Uh, nothing, you know, nothing unusual about any any of the evidentiary issues that came in. Uh, one thing we that that I did learn about, and this is this is less a function of of uh, a uh, of um, trial practice during during COVID than it is just uh, me being dragged into the 21st century. Was uh, uh, we used a a, a an exhibit a uh, document presentation tool called TrialPad. Uh, it's a it's an iPad interface with a uh, with a projector that that uh, uh, we were able to, we we loaded up all of the exhibits uh, onto a on, on, onto our iPads and were able to uh, to control the presentation on of the of the exhibits onto the uh, on, onto a screen using a projector. Uh, and the the, the trial pad uh, software allows you to do things like highlight uh, provisions of a of the of, of a document. Uh, it allows you to uh, to call them out, so you're actually able to uh, to uh, to uh, block off a piece of text and then blow it up, so it jumps up uh, off the page if there's something that you uh, that you want to emphasize. Uh, I did not have a uh, somebody somebody working the technology uh, with me, so I was I, I was uh, actually doing it myself, which I typically wouldn't want to do, and agree with with uh, with Gwen that you, you would certainly want somebody assisting you on uh, on that. I didn't have the luxury in this in this case, and the idea of of using a trial pad is sort of late breaking from uh, from my standpoint. So I'm sort of a a black loose leaf notebook kind of guy when it comes to uh, to to um, to uh, pre uh, exhibit presentation. But the 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 uh, the, the the iPad uh, pre, uh, interface is simple enough that I was I was pretty much able to 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 do it without much in the way of uh, of, of mishap. Uh, I would uh, I have I have a smaller iPad and fat finger, so I did have a little bit of trouble with it. But by and large, it, it was it was uh, it was very uh, uh, very good uh, functionality. Uh, I think, in, you know, finally, in terms of, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I think, you know, for, for however you see it, uh, I think Zoom is here to stay uh, for, uh, in a lot, uh, in, uh, for a substantial part of our practice. Uh, I, you know, for, you know, for the reasons that Matt pointed out in terms of, uh, of sort of alternate procedures, uh, I think, you, I think we, I think we want to have jury trials, and I think jury trials are, are 
best conducted in, in, in a courtroom with, with, uh, with the jurors present. I'm not, I, I know there are, there are ways of potentially doing that, uh, but, um, but so um, um, I'll be, uh, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure how that's, uh, how, how that's going to go. Uh, I do know that the, uh, that, that certainly some of the courts, for example, the land court, I know is, is going to be continuing to, to use uh, Zoom for, um, uh, for things like status conference and so forth, where the, where the court wants to ride herd on the case from a, from a scheduling standpoint. And I think that's a good thing. I think that and the, the idea of, of being able to use Zoom for, uh, for those types of proceedings, as well as to take uh, depositions and, and, uh, and even have experts come in from far-flung places is, 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 uh, is an advantage that I, that I, 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 I hope the courts may uh, continue to use, and, and I think they will. Thanks very much, Mark. And that last point leads me into sort of what I wanted to shift into as the last part of our, our panel today. Um, you know, when I when I envisioned putting this panel together, I was hoping that we would be talking more of we're out of the COVID-19 pandemic or largely. Um, and I know we're not, quite frankly, and um, who knows when we might fully be. So I, I'd be curious to hear from both of you. Um, you know, do you think uh, adjudicatory proceedings like the one you went through during COVID will remain as an option uh, for similar type cases? Aspects of it will remain. Like you said, Mark, Zoom is going to be around for a lot of different things. Um, mediations I find to be incredibly effective over, over Zoom. Do you think that they would exist, Gwen, for example, for a similar land court trial six months from now, a year from now? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I didn't talk about was when we found out we were going to a Zoom trial, there was some disappointment because, you know, a big trial that you've been working on for multiple years, um, it's kind of like the Super Bowl and you're excited to get in the courtroom with the judge and the judge was even excited to be in the courtroom with all of us and kind of have that feel of game time. And while we were able to recreate an aspect of that by having all defense counsel in a room, you missed out on the camaraderie, even with your opposing counsel and the court and the physicality of your physical presence and reading people's body language. And so while I think it was definitely satisfactory, and as I said, there were some benefits, I do think that attorneys and judges who are in this because they appreciate that when you come to the final game of an actual trial, there's so many intangibles that go into it. I think there'll be hesitancy to relinquish it voluntarily. And so while I could see that in certain situations, it might be something that everybody finds palatable, I don't necessarily think that everybody is going to be enthusiastic about it, which will probably be why I don't think there'll be that many of these Zoom trials um, two years from now. Mark, you mentioned a wide variety of other uh, evidentiary hearings other than your in-person jury trial that you engaged in during during uh, COVID. Do you think those sorts of proceedings will endure um, a year from now, for example, if we're able to get back to some level of normalcy after COVID? Not ideally. Uh, the like I say, the you, you both uh, both you know Matt and, and and Gwen both pointed out a shortcoming. With uh, with Zoom that um, that that I've that that I've identified and you know that and that is not be just ha having this having the screen dominated by the exhibit and not being able to 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 really see the uh, uh, the, re the the reaction of the judge to it or the reaction of the uh, to the witness uh, and um, 
the I've had a, the and and Matt to your point, being able to cross examine an expert using a uh, uh, using a publication that that was you know, I, I had I really I, I had that situation in cross examining couple of, of uh, experts during the uh, the evidentiary hearing that I had that on the off of the preliminary injunction it was very difficult and I had to really sort of I, I, I had to sort of play it uh, not as I would have liked to in terms of con confronting the witness with the uh, with the document now having said that uh, the, the one of the cases that I did on um, uh, the, the that same case there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of photographic evidence. And that was that actually worked pretty well over uh, over Zoom to be able to throw a uh, throw an exhibit up on the on the screen and then be able to use the cursor uh, to to orient the witness and the judge to you know particular part of the of the uh, the, the photograph or the or the plot plan that uh, that we're talking about. So I think in that respect it's okay. Uh, in the but I think from a you know from you know from textual documents I think it's it it it's it's not as great and you know and and uh, you know and as Gwen pointed out it, it is game time and you know you want to be you know you want to be in the stadium at game time and I and uh, I think you know I I I sort of laughingly uh, thought that when when the judge heard that we it was when Judge Doolin heard there was going to be a trial in his in, in his courtroom I thought he was you know he probably would have given us a high five if we were if we were there he was he was very excited about it as you know as we all were um now this was you know i was I, I wasn't all that enthusiastic about trying the case because i thought the case should have settled uh and but that said you know the opportunity to the, the you know the 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 opportunity to try a case and to try a case to a jury that's what you know that's what you know that's what the three of us live for and i'm sure a lot of the people who are you know who are watching this webinar live for and having it in the courtroom is you know is really you know where you know where it ought to be uh, mediations. I've, I've done some mediations over Zoom. Uh, I've had less success with it than than you have, Matt. But I but I think that's a function of the cases rather than the either the mediator or the uh, or, or the or the process. And you know, in terms and you know, motion hearings those can be those can be conducted uh, pretty efficiently over um, uh, over Zoom. Um, I, I'd rather be in the courtroom. But on the other hand, I'd rather be, you know, I'd rather, you know, and my clients would rather that I not have to drive from my office in Boston to Barnstable or Worcester or someplace else to do that. The, the, the cost efficiencies from uh, uh, arising out of the, uh, out of Zoom or, you know, are, you know, going to be great. And I think the idea of, I'm in this, this evidentiary hearing that I had that I've talked about, uh, I had a, we had a witness testifying from Israel. And uh, and you know and she was and and she was able to uh, you know to you know to rather than having to having to travel here during COVID, um, she was you know she was able to testify from the, the comfort of her of her own home. So and I, I know think, just one one thing I would say that I I do foresee that some hybrid going forward is in this case it was live streamed and at, it was a very. Um, uh, of high interest public case. And there were over a hundred people live streaming it at a time for certain witnesses. And I imagine the court likes to be able to offer the public that going forward now that they have. So I, I could see that there's some hybrid situation where a live stream is set up or a Zoom link for certain defendants, if there's numerous defendants to be able to join that way. But um, yeah, with Mark, I think that, that there's there was a roles for it in some more mediations and arbitrations, but maybe not as much in the trial setting. Yeah. And, and, and to that point, when I had the, the Housing Appeals Committee case that I had, 
um, was uh, was live streamed, and it's and they and it is you know it is very much a public hearing, and in fact under the under the typical rules of the uh, Housing Appeals Committee, the first day of the hearing is actually conducted uh, at, uh, at at town hall or, or city hall, and we weren't able to do that in this case, but we were able to open up the uh, the the feed to allow you know al allow residents of the of the town to be able to uh, to to watch. So I think that's you know I, I think that would be a uh, a ha having having that level of access would be uh, would would be of benefit. Yeah, I tend to agree with you both. I think attorneys and, and judges alike would want us to get back to in-person jury trials, in-person, uh, you know, even bench trials. Um, I do think the reality is if even if COVID were to end tomorrow and we were all able to be back in fully in person, no masks or anything, the backlog that's been created on both the civil and the criminal side, even if we wanted to have every case tried to a jury, there's just not enough infrastructure. There's just not enough logistics to get that done. So I think even if, even if that is the ultimate goal, um, to, to forego the Zoom for the adjudicatory proceedings long-term. In the immediate term, I think the next two years, we're all gonna have to work pretty creatively uh, to figure out ways to work through what is a daunting backlog for the entire bar and, and obviously for the judiciary as well. But Gwen and Mark, I really wanna thank you for your time today. I found this to be fascinating. I think you know, COVID has presented a lot of unique challenges for our industry. And I think I've been impressed with the way in which we've all risen to the occasion to do what we can uh, for our clients and to, to make sure there's still access to justice through the judicial system in Massachusetts. Um, it's gonna be a challenge going forward. We're not through it, um, but I think you know, working creatively like this and the technology has been remarkable. Um, we've been able to at least keep things relatively moving um, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, any final comments before we uh, log off? And thank you to all of our uh, participants as well. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did being part of it. Um, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. Thanks, Jenna. Bye. Yeah, thank you, Jenna. Bye, thank you all. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Bye.